0: Hello, and welcome back to New Books in Latino Studies, a podcast channel on the New Books Network. I'm your host, David James Gonzalez, and I'm pleased to be speaking with you, Tokunaga, author of Transborder Los Angeles An Unknown Trans Pacific History of Japanese Mexican Relations, published by the University of California Press in 2022. Uh, Yu Tokunaga received his Ph.D. in history from the University of Southern California in 2018. Currently, he is associate professor of history at the Graduate School of Global Environmental Studies with a joint appointment at the Graduate School of Human and Environmental Studies uh, at Kyoto University in Japan. Hello, Yu, and welcome to New Books in Latino Studies.
1: Thank you for having me, and it's a pleasure to talk with you.
0: Definitely, um, and is it okay if I call you Toku?
1: Yeah, definitely. So,
0: <laughs> since I'm more, uh, I'm, I'm more used to using that nickname, if you will, or, or portion of your last name. Yeah. <laughs> um, so for the audience, uh, Toku and I went to, we're at graduate school together. We overlapped uh, during our time at the University of Southern California. So I somewhat saw a little bit how this project developed but we'll we'll get to that in a moment i'm wondering if you can just begin uh, toku by telling us a little bit about yourself a little mm-hmm. bit about your background
1: Okay, thank you. Uh, first of all, I have to explain why I go by Toku because my my Please. first name <laughs> you uh, is is a little uh, confusing in English because everybody is basically you in English. So so I go by Toku uh, from my uh, family name. Okay. By the way, uh, for my background, I was born in Japan in 1982, and I grew up in Kyoto, where I work now, uh, and. Since I was a high school student, uh, I have been uh, interested in exploring how people with different ethno-racial backgrounds could live together. And before entering a college, I entered Kyoto University. I'm going to talk about that uh, later. Uh, I learned uh, some of the socioeconomic difficulties uh, faced by immigrant groups and their descendants in Japan, such as... uh, people of Korean descent, generally known as Zainichi Koreans and Japanese Peruvians. Uh, Since I was uh, ethnically part of the majority in in the modern sense, uh, it was shocking to know uh, that there were such injustice and inequality in Japan. So I thought it was very important for me to think how to build a more inclusive society although I was not sure what I would do in the future at that time. uh, When I was a high school student, I was uh, curious about other things I didn't know. So uh, when I was 17, I went to Costa Rica and lived there for one year as an exchange student. Out of pure curiosity, I, I simply wanted to go somewhere I knew nothing about. And in Japan, uh, Central America is not much known, uh, so uh, that's why I wanted to go there. And I learned Spanish and uh, got a better understanding of Latin American culture in Costa Rica. Uh, certainly I enjoyed living with my host family and friends and drinking flavorful Costa Rican coffee. Uh, and I, <laughs> it's actually Costa Rican coffee is really good. I recommend uh, that everyone sh- should uh, try. And I, I know uh, in America, people drink a lot of coffee, and you, know, you have uh, tasted it. But anyway, I love Costa Rican coffee. Anyway, I, exp- and also uh, when it comes to uh, immigration history, I, I experienced uh, what it was like to be a minority person uh, from Asia as well in, in Costa Rica. So uh, my experiences in both Japan and Costa Rica uh, made me even more interested in exploring how people with different ethno racial backgrounds could live together. So this curiosity uh, led me to uh, led me to study US history in my undergraduate and graduate programs. Uh, and when I was a junior student at Kyoto University, I, studied at uc riverside for one year again as an exchange student and took many uh ethnic studies classes and after uh graduating from kyoto university uh i was not sure if i uh, what i would do in my future yet so uh, uh, academia was one of my options but I, i was not sure totally so i got a Job uh, as a newspaper reporter because I wanted to do that job too, and I worked as a reporter for four years in Japan, and I reported many many different things, incidents and accidents. You know, uh, you know, or uh, all the and you know, I covered many many issues, but I uh, tried to report the current situation of immigrants in Japan as well. And while reporting uh, such things in Japan, I became increasingly interested in having expertise in immigration history. Uh, and I wanted to study U.S. immigration history again and more uh, because uh, it tells a lot, of, uh, a lot about uh, both Asians and Latinos in an immigrant society. Then I finally decided to enter graduate school to get a PhD in history. And I went to USC and met DJ there, and it was great. And what, what is interesting is that uh, when I was in Costa Rica, I didn't think I would use Spanish for my work in the future. Uh, I just wanted to do something new. So, you know, uh, I happened to learn Spanish, I would say. And also, Spanish was the, my first foreign language. Uh, I didn't speak English well uh, when I was a high school student, so I learned Spanish. But eventually, I wrote my dissertation and my book by using a lot of Spanish, Spanish language sources. So I think it was a little uh, interesting twist in my life. And unfortunately, as you said, I now have a position in Kyoto, uh, my hometown, and I teach U.S. Immigration History at Kyoto University. So, this is a short summary of my background.
0: Thanks, Toku. Um, I'll tell our audience that your Spanish is better than mine, so...
1: (laughs) (laughs) I I don't know. (laughs) uh, I'm still trying to, you know, study Spanish because...
0: Well, Toku, why don't you tell us about how the book, the, the project developed, and particularly you started to mention how Spanish, you know, came in handy. But, you know, this is not only a, a transnational study, it's also, you know, you you conduct re- research in three different languages. So uh, can you talk about, you know, how that develops also?
1: Okay, thank you. So uh, as I said, you know, the fundamental reason why I wanted to, uh, this research is I just I, I always I was interested in exploring how people of different ethno-racial backgrounds uh, could live together. Right. So but uh, there is a longer story about uh, how my dissertation developed. Dissertation uh, uh, became uh, my book later. So when I applied to USC, uh, my initial plan was to focus on Japanese-Mexican labor conflict in the 1970s. Uh, th- there was a well-known conflict between the United Farm Workers and the Nisei Farmers League. Uh, I thought it was a good idea to use my language skills, as a, uh, both Japanese and Spanish, and at that time I could handle English as well. So, uh, But after I started to study at USC, I realized that there was much more to know about Japanese-Mexican relations in, in Los Angeles before World War II. Uh, and then 2000, I think it, it was in 2013, uh, I had a chance to attend an event about the history of Japanese in the Dominguez Hills area in Los Angeles. And there I learned that... Uh, the California State University at Dominguez Hills had a lot of primary sources re- related to local and uh, local land companies and Japanese farmers who leased land from such companies. Uh, so I decided to do research on this this specific area right away, and I, I I was hoping to find evidence that would show the relations between Japanese and Mexicans. Then I found that many lands leased by Japanese were taken over by Mexicans after Japanese internment. So uh, I wrote a paper for a research seminar at the USC, and this piece became chapter six of my book, uh, and chapter five is about kind of similar topic, but the relationship between the Japanese internment and the Brosero program, because I, I wanted to sh- know the relations between uh, Mexican immigrant experience and the Japanese immigrant experience. And also at USC, I, I, I took classes uh, together with G- DJ and the classes on Mexican American history or Mexican American studies uh, by reading many books and articles on Mexican immigration, uh, immigrants' history in Los Angeles. Again, I learned that uh, Mexicans and Japanese had serious labor conflicts in the 1930s. Uh, but no study had examined these interethnic conflicts from the perspective of Japanese government and uh, Japanese immigrants. So, uh, I started to do uh, tri national and trilingual research in Japan, Mexico, and the United States. Uh, and uh, I was hoping to find something that demonstrates uh, the mechanism of inter ethnic relations and the trans Pacific dimension of these uh, local uh, conflicts that took place in Los Angeles. and. Uh, what is really fascinating is that you, you can find historical documents related to Mexicans in Los Angeles at the Japanese archives, not in the U.S. And also, likewise, uh, you can find documents related to Japanese in Los Angeles at the Mexican archives. So or uh, I guess many listeners of this podcast conversation are interested in Latino studies, but I would say you can find uh, documents for your research on the Latina studies topic, not only in the United States, but also in some other countries like Japan. So uh, even if you focus on a specific immigrant group, n- not only Latinos or other groups of people uh, in the U.S., uh, historical documents are scattered around the world. So that's uh, one of the fascinating, uh, you know, uh, thing to do uh, historical research. And my research on um, Japanese Mexican labor conflicts became became important parts, very important parts of my dissertation and eventually uh, chapter three and four of my book. So this is how my dissertation developed and came into uh, became uh, my book. Uh, yes.
0: Great toku And on that, that point that you bring up, how you can find uh, these these documentary records scattered, you know, throughout these different countries, is that particularly because of the type of records they are and that you're using consulate records and you're using newspapers at, you know, f- uh, foreign language newspapers like the Shimpo, which is the Japanese language newspaper in Los Angeles, or La Opinion, right, Mexican language newspaper, uh, I'm sorry Mexican language, Spanish language newspaper. Uh, and sorry, it's it's uh, coming towards the end of the day here. so <laughs> your day's just starting, mine's just ending, so my brain's starting to shut down. but um but is is that kind of because of that nature of of those records?
1: I, I would say it's a nature of the the topics i I focused on because our labor conflicts are not about uh, uh, about uh, you know uh, Local issues in Los Angeles, because you know, or uh, the reason why, for example, the reason why I could find documents related to Japanese-Mexican conflicts in Los Angeles at a Japanese archive is because the the Ministry of Foreign Affairs of Japan was checking. Uh, the communist activities uh, around the world because the Japanese government wanted to prevent communism from spreading uh, in Japan so th- they were very uh you know uh, they were paying close attention to what is happening in other countries so uh japanese Mexican uh conflicts in Los Angeles are can be understood or framed as a as a history of inter-ethnic uh uh relations in Los Angeles but uh, if you take a transnational perspective or, or international perspective uh, that that is much beyond that so or the Japanese government recorded uh, meticulously about uh, how uh, you know uh, Mexican labor movements, uh, affected Japanese population in in the Los Angeles, so that's why I could find those documents. And at the same time, when I, lo- I was looking at uh, documents in Japan, uh, the Japanese government uh, uh, was aware aware of how uh, the, uh, the Japanese Mexican conflict affected Japanese in Mexico. So then I uh, try to look at uh, related documents and I look at, for example, La Opinion and how I wanted to see how La Opinion uh, reported the conflict and whether they reported uh, about the reaction of Japanese in Mexico to the conflict in Los Angeles. So this is how I connected different uh, kinds of sources scattered around the world, and eventually uh, put everything together in, uh, in each chapter or a, a book. Yes,
0: that's definitely fascinating, and I think that you know the documentary record speaks to the type of unique place that. That, you know, 19 or early 20th century Los Angeles, particularly, you know, agricultural, the agricultural parts of Los Angeles, it was, right? And you describe this, that is, you know, L.A. farmland, you know, between, you know, 1900 and 1930, all the way up until World War II, really, the beginning of World War II, uh, as a trans-Pacific workplace. Uh, Can you expand on that? Explain what you mean by that?
1: Okay. Uh, Trans-Pacific workplace is a concept uh, that means a contested site in which the uh, local relations uh, among Mexicans, Japanese and white Americans operated within the context of increasingly precarious international relations around the Pacific Ocean. Uh, so I regard Los Angeles farmland as a trans-Pacific workplace in my book and I. Uh, uh, this is related to, to the reason why I titled my book Transborder Los Angeles. It's, it's a very close concept. Uh, I titled my book Transborder Los Angeles because uh, in Los Angeles farmland, as I said, I regard Los Angeles farmland as a trans pacific workplace. Uh, there, Japanese, Mexicans, and white Americans together formed uh, inter-ethnic relations beyond racial and class boundaries in both uh, local and transnational contexts. And uh, especially after the United States prohibited Japanese immigration in 1924, uh, Mexican uh, farm workers provided indispensable labor force for Japanese tenant farmers in agriculture because Japanese tenant farmers uh, were not able to expect that the newly coming Japanese were providing labor for their firms because uh, uh, Japanese immigration was prohibited. So Mexican-Japanese relations uh, deepened, uh, especially after 1924. And in the more urban areas, are uh, uh, Japanese merchants and doctors, had catered to Mexican residents and supported, interestingly, supported the publication of La Opinion. La Opinion is, a, a, as you know, a major Mexican immigrant newspaper in Los Angeles. They uh, they supported the publication of La Opinion as advertisers uh, since the since the paper's founding in 1926. So it's I really enjoyed looking at uh, early, uh, uh, you know. Uh, editions of uh, La Opinion, uh, looking at and uh, finding many ads uh, placed by Japanese uh, merchants and adopters the and they say, you know, se habla espanol, that kind of thing, we speak Spanish. So, you know, just to uh, appealing to Mexican residents in there. and and uh another interesting twist is La Opinión uh was financially partly su- supported by Japanese merchants and doctors and many other uh, non-Japanese advertisers as well but uh, interestingly this La Opinión became the the uh, played a very important role in supporting uh, Mexican strikers in the 1930s so and uh, things are very uh uh Interconnected and and also sometimes they are supporting each other. Sometimes they are uh, fighting each other in the case of conflicts. But uh, I I think I uh, explained uh, clearly how the their relations developed uh, in uh, in farmland. Yep.
0: Great. Great. You mentioned the interactions between. Um... You know, white landowners, Japanese tenant farmers, Mexican farm workers, uh, you know, in Los Angeles agriculture. Uh, some of our listeners may be aware that, uh, you know, Los Angeles had many other, you know, ethnic and racial groups. But uh, as you explain and describe, when it comes to farmland, it's really the inter the interaction of three, these three groups, right? Um, you know, white landowners, and, and we understand white landowners is, is an expansive, you know, category as, you know, whiteness is developing. And um, and expanding in the early 20th century, but uh, you label this a triracial hierarchy, hierarchy which is a, a fascinating term that that again I think is is pretty unique, um, at least to Los Angeles with these three groups. Um, it, it reading your book made me, since I'm you know currently in the process of my own research on Orange County, it made me think you know about a lot about Orange County and how there is not this triracial uh, hierarchy uh, in agriculture in Orange County. Orange County was really a kind of binary system between whites and Mexicans. So, can you talk about this triracial hierarchy in, in LA agriculture? Um, kind of how it worked and where you know Mexicans and Japanese were were positioned within it.
1: Okay, so our Racial hierarchy is an important concept, and also I would say it's the reality in the past. And uh, Japanese farmers are were not able to uh, lease lands uh, uh, because of the alien uh, California alien land law in 1913 and 1920. But many Japanese uh, continue to lease land from white landowners uh, uh, under the name of their U.S.-born children. So basically, uh, uh, there was a tacit, uh, a a consensus, sort of tacit consensus between uh, white landowners and Japanese tenant farmers uh, for Japanese farmers to keep uh, leasing land. in in Los Angeles. And, but as I said, after the United States prohibited, it's another uh, discriminatory discriminatory immigration policy, but the US uh, prohibited Japanese immigration in 1924. So Japanese uh, needed to hire uh, another source of uh, labor. Uh, And Mexicans uh, were not restricted uh, uh, by the Immigration Act of 1924, so although there are new you know uh, system to control the immigration, including uh, Mexicans, but uh, not numerically prohibited, uh, Mexicans were not uh, could enter the United States. So uh, they became uh, the major source of uh, farm workers for Japanese tenant farmers. So that created what I called the tri-racial hierarchy. And uh, what is interesting is that, uh, you know, uh, when Mexicans uh, suffered uh, or or faced uh, real uh, economic difficulty because their wage was low, they went on strike against uh, farmers. But uh, farmers were leasing land from f- white landowners, so they J- Japanese farmers uh, themselves are in the in the in a difficult situation uh, as well. But the the entire system is uh, basically owned by uh, white agribusiness. But when it comes to strikes, uh, those immigrant groups fought each other, and our white agribusiness could. Uh, could stay a little bit away from the conflict, but hoping uh, that Japanese farmers uh, would win in the conflict. Uh, you know. So that is system is interesting. Uh, everyone in that system was trying to uh, work hard to get a better life. And the Japanese tenant farmers, Mexican workers, and and you know maybe white landowners in their own sense. But uh, it shows the, the entire system of, of white uh, agribusiness, and you could say it's a racial cap. It's part of a racial capitalism. But uh, uh, at the same time, I wanted to look at the agency of those immigrants, even though they were under the influence of this big, uh, dominant uh, in uh, capitalist and racial uh, uh, racist structure. But still, those immigrants were who, who trying to do their best, and sometimes they. Try to uh, try to nurture mutual understanding each other and uh, try to understand. What, for example, Japanese farmers try to understand uh, what uh, the situation the Mexicans and also Mexicans also try to talk with somebody who uh, who they knew uh, better uh, and to negotiate together. For example, Mexican consular or immigrant le- uh, labor. Union leader or had some some close relationship with certain parts of um, Japanese farmers and Japanese leaders. So I wanted to show those details, uh, the agency of immigrants, at the same time the dominant structure of of, uh, capitalist agriculture in Los Angeles.
0: Yeah, certainly. I think one of the um, the fascinating things for me to learn uh, was uh, that as part of this triracial hierarchy. Uh, you know that it, it actually expands across borders, right? You describe the formation of the trans-border ethnic uh, an ethnic Japanese community in in Mexicali, in Baja California, Mexico, right? Um, as a result of the racist and exclusionary um, 1924 Immigration Act, can you? talk more about that tie that let's bring that into the system because that is just a fascinating story I mean I was very much aware of the the history of the ethnic uh, of Chinese right and particularly in that in that region in Mehikali I have family there on both sides of our family and but but this story actually was a little uh, new and you provide a lot more detail so tell us how is it you know and why is it that there's a, a, a the formation of a Japanese community in, in mehikali
1: Okay, so my book uh, uh, looks at the uh, Immigration Act of 1924 uh, that prohibited uh, Japanese immigration altogether Uh, from a transnational perspective. uh, The Immigration Act of 1924 is uh, Japanese exclusion, but that uh, uh, that kind of resulted in Japanese inclusion in Baja, California, because uh, before the Immigration Act of 1924, Japanese, the Japanese government uh, uh, refrained from sending Japanese immigrants to, to Mexico uh, based on the gentleman, gentleman's agreement between signed between Japan and the United States because uh, many immigr- Japanese immigrants in Mexico became undocumented immigrants into the United States. So the U.S. Uh, wanted the Japanese government uh, to stop sending immigrants to Mexico, and the Japanese government uh, agreed with that uh, policy. So. Uh, th- there were not many Japanese newly coming immigrants in Mexico until 1924. But the 1924 Immigration Act uh, unilaterally nullified the gentleman's agreement uh, that prevented the Japanese government from sending immigrants to Mexico. So now the Japanese government became free to send immigrants to uh, Mexico. So uh, as a result, many Japanese uh, migrated to Mexico after 1924, and many of them settled in Mexicali, Mexicali Baja California, and the the Japanese ethnic Japanese community uh, developed in Mexicali. And uh, uh, another important thing is that the the Japanese community in Mexicali in Baja California. Uh, became a southern part of the larger Japanese, ethnic Japanese, uh, transborder ethnic Japanese community uh, with Los Angeles as, uh, as its nucleus and center. So eventually, because of the 1924 Immigration Act, which was the Japanese exclusion, uh it had an unintended consequence of creating a larger transborder ethnic community uh, because of the newly, newly coming immigrants to mexico and those uh, japanese immigrants in Mexicali are uh, you know had cultural political and social relations economic relations with with los angeles japanese so When uh, so it's the creation of what I said, uh, a transporter ethnic Japanese community. And uh, what is interesting is that when uh, Mexicans went on strike against Japanese farmers in in Los Angeles, uh, anti-Mexican, sorry, anti-Japanese sentiment uh, developed and emerged with uh, Mexican nationalism. And eventually affected the the Japanese population in Mexicali, and putting pressure on Japanese uh, in Mexicali to support Mexicans in Los Angeles. So because of that pressure, uh, Japanese in Mexicali decided to issue a pro labor, pro Mexican statement, uh, and even donated. Uh, $500 dollars—it's it, a big sum of money in that time uh, to strikers in Los, in Los Angeles, even though they had been supported by uh, Japanese in Los Angeles but they needed to show their support to uh, Mexicans in Los Angeles so uh, that uh, you know, strike in Los Angeles in 1920, uh, 1930s uh, cannot really understood uh, within the framework of national history, U.S. national history, because it had uh, impact in Mexico. And, and what is more fascinating is that that impact affected the Japanese government in Tokyo as well. So uh, the people and the, the government officials in Tokyo uh, was aware, were aware of the transporter development of the strike. So they uh, tried to explain, tried to persuade the Japanese in Los Angeles that there was a growing problem in Mexico. So if, if Japanese in Los Angeles uh, didn't make a compromise and agreed uh, sign, uh, to sign some contract with Mexican strikers in Los Angeles, that would affect in, really problematic in Mexico. So finally, because of that transborder uh, factor, uh, Japanese in Los Angeles finally decided to make com- compromise and sign a contract with uh, Mexican strikers in Los Angeles. So, transborder, uh, it's uh, I'm talking about uh, transborder ethnic Japanese community uh, in chapter uh, chapter one, I guess. But that is a very important background to understand Los Angeles from a trans-Pacific and a trans a transnational perspective. Thank you. Yeah.
0: Yeah. No, it's it's really quite fascinating because you have these two kind of like geographic ideas working. I mean, you have you know these, this idea of these trans-Pacific communities, right, and connections of migrations, right, primarily through. Um, You know, business relationships, political relationships that that extend across um, family, migratory streams that extend across the Pacific, Pacific. and then also just across the border. I I mean, that example of how you have, um, you know, Japanese businesses in Los Angeles that help support the Spanish language newspaper, um, La Opinion, right? And then you have the businessmen japanese business owners in baja california and in, in uh, mexicali that are worried right that due to the te- the tensions over this strike that there's going to be um boycotts of their businesses and, you know, negative, you know, um, you know, discriminatory racial ramifications for them, which is what gets them, as you explained, to turn to actually support the Mexican strikers. <laughs> mm-hmm. Yes. <laughs> you know, and, 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 and just the, the consulates are involved and there's the international relations of it, of this. It really is such a fascinating example Um of all the complexity, uh, that exists, that, that goes beyond, as you explain in this, in this particular chapter, an example, um, a, of a triumph over ethnic, you know, nationalism or ethnic solidarity for a type of Mexican nationalism, right? The, the ethnic Japanese who are Mexican, right? In Mexico, supporting Mexican strikers. Um, tremendous example. I mean, just what a, what a fascinating, uh, example and how you interweave all these narratives is, is really great um, particularly in that chapter so yes that's a that's a phenomenal uh, I think example of the complexity of this tri-racial hierarchy and how it as you mentioned it, it it not only leads to these moments of conflict due to right the the way that capitalist agriculture is run particularly in Los Angeles but it's also you know you have capitalism on the outside of the border also um, but you know there. are is then also these moments of, uh, of accommodation, that, accommodation that exists between all different groups. So it's, it's, again, it's just not this, uh, maybe a, a, you know, simple type of race relations when we may think of a hierarchy. Okay. We have the whites on top. We have the Mexicans as you, I mean, not, sorry, the Japanese, as you explained as the middle minority and the Mexicans at the bottom, you know, due to all these different dynamics, uh, it is very fluid, you know, particularly between the Mexican and Japanese, um, you know, as they, as you mentioned, as, as they're both striving to essentially survive during very difficult times. I mean, this is happening during the depression. So, uh, Japanese farm workers are, are uh, tenant, uh, farmers are not making a lot of money. They're, they're very, they're really struggling making a profit, right? It's very difficult for them, as you explained to, um, provide any type of a raise for Mexicans because they're barely surviving as it is. Um, and then you have just situation thrown on top of it. So, uh, certainly fascinating, uh, so you mentioned two, there's two strikes that you kind of cover in the middle um, portion of the book, and that really provide these different examples of of how Japanese tenant farmers really have to rethink the relationship with um, their Mexican labor. Um, the whole system, mind you, is is dependent upon Mexican labor, um, that is agriculture um, in that way, because as you mentioned, right, uh, very clearly that that's the primary labor source, Um tell us about uh, the role that, um, you know, internment plays. We move out of the Depression, uh, and that's ended by World War II, right? The United States entering World War II for the most part. Then there's the complexity of, you know, the Japanese being interned. How does that shake everything up, both in – for the landscape of of Los Angeles agriculture uh, itself, how that works, like economically, but then also – Race relations uh, for Los Angeles in general.
1: Mm-hmm. So, are the Japanese internment, you know, uh, was are really really a you know, big impact in a obviously big impact in in the situation of minorities and also the economy of Los Angeles. So, the what I focused on my uh, in my book is that how California agriculture. Or Los Angeles agriculture could survive without uh, Japanese farmers who uh, played a significant role in maintaining and development de- developing uh, Los Angeles agriculture and California agriculture. So I was uh, trying to, and at the same time I I was wondering if there was a linkage between. Uh, Japanese internment and the Bracero program, because uh, if you take uh, Mexican American history classes, uh, you definitely learn a lot about the Bracero program, right? And we uh, study about the Japanese American history. We, you know, we we learn a lot about the Japanese internment, but those two big uh, things are somehow uh, discussed separately, e- even though those two events took place in the same year, I would say. So I was wondering how California agriculture could survive without Japanese, how Japanese internment was connected to Bracero program. So that's the starting point of my research. So uh, when Japanese uh When uh, the uh, Japanese uh, uh, was removed and interned, uh, there was a serious concern among agricultural officers, uh, officials uh, of the uh, Agriculture Department, at the same time the California state government. And especially uh, California governor, uh, Colbert Olson, was uh, very worried about the situation of uh, agriculture in California because he knew that Japanese w- w- were very important in uh, agriculture. So uh, basically, what he wanted to do is uh, keep Japanese within the border of California. So uh, they, uh, even if uh, Japanese were uh, under surveillance and under the control of the government after the Pearl Harbor attack. The uh, uh, government also wanted to keep in some way the Japanese uh, farmers within California to maintain uh, or, or keep farmers operational. So the kind of he resisted to the mass removal and, and the replace, uh, the relocation of Japanese outside the California or outside the, the farming area of California. So I looked at uh, Calvert Olson's uh, papers and also I went to look at documents of the Department of Agriculture. And there are many, many uh, evidence that uh, offic- officials kind of... Uh, resisted the mass removal to keep Japanese. And it's not, uh, the primary reason is to keep uh, Japanese uh, from an economic per, uh, point of view, right? But if you look at those documents, you can tell m- much more than those uh, economic factors. Uh, and, uh, Governor Olson uh, really shows his uh, trust uh, in Japanese people. And they, he, he said things that those Japanese were, many Japanese were innocent and they, there was no clear reason for many people of Japanese descent to be relocated. So he clearly said that kind of things in, in, in that time period. And I, Wanted to know how Japanese reacted to Olson's attitude, and and, and basically, uh, Japanese people. If you look at uh, Japanese newspapers, uh, they uh, uh, kind of welcomed. Uh, they uh, reacted to Olson's attitude favor uh, in uh, with favor. So I think I wanted to look at that point first and. But eventually, Japanese was interned uh, and uh, disappeared from Los Angeles. So then, uh, the, the very the same moment, the many Mexicans uh, came to provide labor in 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 Los Angeles. Although many Jap- Mexicans came to Los Angeles, but there was another problem because uh, Mexican. Workers who came through the Bracero programs were workers, not the tenant farmers. So uh, there was a uh, still there was a still serious problem of uh, hiring the new tenant farmers who could replace who could uh, take uh, take care of former Japanese farmers, and it was really difficult. And so I was looking at uh, lease contracts. Uh, of the Dominguez Hills area, and I was looking at who actually took over Japanese lands, and I eventually found uh, many Japanese farms were first uh, taken uh, were taken over by some. Non-Mexican uh, people, but eventually they were taken over by M- Mexicans. And the the president of uh, one of the president of the land companies in Dominguez Hills said, oh, actually Mexicans uh, replaced Japanese in 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 his uh, land. So or the uh, demographic changes dram- dramatically, and the question is that when. Japanese internment ended, and many Japanese uh, returned to Los Angeles. Uh, what happened? And after that, they reestablished uh, the same tri-racial hierarchy or, or, or the same, you know, ethnic agriculture. But it was not the case, because the World War II dramatically changed the industries in Los Angeles. So, war industries and other uh, and non-agricultural industry developed uh, rapidly, and at the same time, so many immigrants or it's it's a domestic migrants came into the United States during the war and after the war. So that resulted in the rapid urbanization, uh, in Los Angeles, and many farmland became a residential or other uh, lands. So, or uh, there was no room for. Uh, Japanese returnees to reestablish the same, uh, you know, economic activities. So that's why they, uh, that's, I think, one of the reasons why we don't remember uh, well how, uh, remember well about the tri-racial hierarchy, because that kind of disappeared because of the World War II. So that's the, the the drastic change of the demography and, and the impact on race relations in, in Los Angeles,
0: I guess. Thank you. Right. You know, particularly, you know, during those post-war years with urbanization, you get increased, um, uh, again, you know, segregated suburbs, uh, you know, the hardening of racial barriers, particularly for African-Americans in Los Angeles, the increasing Latino population. So certainly you're right. It's a complete demographic uh, shift. Something that I'm interested in, just as you hear you talk, because I think of the time that we spent living in Los Angeles, um, you know, if you go to farmer's markets uh, in Los Angeles uh, to this day, I am particularly thinking of the farmer's market that would travel through South Pasadena, which is where we lived, my family and I, while we were in L.A. for, <clears throat> for seven years. um Several of those farms are owned by Japanese uh, farmers, uh, or, or at least the the stands are operated by Japanese farmers. So I presume that they're Japanese-owned businesses. I noticed that sub, s- several of them were like either in Riverside or San Bernardino counties. Did any of your research show you that? You know the the Japanese families that perhaps were were leasing lands and weren't able to come back and 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 do that again in Los Angeles. Did they move elsewhere? Did they go to other counties, whether it's a Riverside, um, you know, San Bernardino, maybe even Orange County? And I know there were Japanese families in agriculture doing you know in Orange County, um, it, not not to the extent in Los Angeles because Orange County was so dominated by citrus production, particularly Valencias, and those were owned primarily by uh, white landowners that that did not lease their land out, um, at least to Japanese um, farmers. So anyway, so, so just to, to that aspect of it, did was there kind of like another migration that sort of happened to to other outlining yeah. areas?
1: Uh, th- th- that's a great question, because uh, as I said, uh, many Japanese returned to Los Angeles. So th- there were Japanese population, even though there was no triracial hierarchy that existed in the pre-war period. But, you know, many Japanese, of you know, m- many Japanese are gave up or uh, on, on uh, stopped doing agriculture after the war. But at the same time, some of them wanted to keep, keep doing agriculture because they are, uh, you know, they think they thought they were good at you know, agriculture, so they wanted to use their skills, right? So many of them actually moved out of uh, Los Angeles, for example, to uh, Ventura County or. Ox, Oxnard area, and there's still you know, large Japanese farmers there. And also other there are people who went to the, uh, Orange County, even though there were Japanese farmers uh, in Orange County before the war, but they went to Orange County. So they the, the, the center of Japanese agriculture certainly uh, uh, moved uh, uh, away to other areas. and But another there is another dimension we have to look at. Uh, even though Japanese uh, immigrants uh, stopped doing agriculture in Los Angeles, uh, the gardening industry developed among Japanese very much after the war because of the urbanization. Now you have many houses in in your city. You need to, you know, you need gardeners to right. uh uh, make your house good or make your uh neighborhood good so many japanese became a major uh uh you know uh, gardeners in los angeles and interestingly many japanese hired mexicans many japanese gardeners hired in you know mexicans in los angeles so I wouldn't say that's a true racial hierarchy because there's no, you know, white landowners in that system. It's it's, Japanese gardeners were independent business owners, so they hired Mexicans. But still, you know, the post-war period created a new race relations in Los Angeles because of the urbanization. So that's a fascinating part of it.
0: Wow. No, uh, that certainly is. Uh, well, Toku, I want to, I'm definitely appreciative of your time and, uh, you know, for the time you spent with us on New Books on Latino Studies. And this will be, uh, this conversation will be cross-posted on several other New Books uh, channels and Asian American Studies and American Studies, et cetera. So uh, we'll definitely uh, get this out to a much wider audience. But uh, just again, Toku, thank you for your phenomenal book. It was, uh, it's, it's, even for someone alongside you that, that, studied LA history quite a bit in grad school. I learned so much uh, from this book uh, that it it was just very enjoyable. So thank you uh, for this tremendous contribution.
1: Thank you so much for having me and I really enjoyed our conversation and I hope to see you in person sometime soon. (laughs)